Breaking news from Mars. The Augustan army has claimed the planet following an iron reign, and Nero Augustus has been set free. Rogal Fabii, the leader of the Augustan Armada, has captured more than 80% of the Bologna fleet, leaving this reporter wondering, is this Nelson reincarnate? Broadcast here. Screwface, thank Jove! These spoilers had me pissing myself. No, 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 it's fine. I, I cannot wait until this gory war is over. Welcome to Hail Reaper. My name is Philip, and this is my good friend Jeremy. How's it going, bruh? It is going very well. I actually uh, just finished watching my second run-through of Mandalorian Season 2, so I'm very curious to see if you even came through on, on a single episode yet. Yeah, dude. I actually watched it. It was crazy. I did not expect the Jar Jar Binks cameo. That was wild. <laughs> oh, geez. You didn't even watch it, did you? <laughs> I didn't watch it at all. <laughs> I You're did a terrible not. human being. I did not. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty bad. I, I got Peacock, though. I got that streaming service, Peacock. It's pretty good. Got to check out some old Office reruns and then uh, watch some Premier League soccer on that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm not very familiar with Peacock. But I also don't want to give him a free commercial, so don't explain <laughs> it to me. I'll just stay naive. We gave WandaVision a commercial last week, and basically, we're just trotting out Mandalorian every single week true. for Disney Plus right now. Well, cool. Let's go ahead and we have some news. We have some new business to get to real quick before we jump into the podcast. We're doing a podcast-only giveaway. We've been asking people on different social media outlets to give us a five-star review on iTunes. There's a reason for that. We're not just like looking for affirmation. <laughs> we actually really, um, we actually, it really does help us. So when we do this process of asking for reviews, it's because that iTunes and their algorithm is really important for growth of a podcast, believe it or not. And a lot of other smaller podcast companies and players actually use that same algorithm. So it actually makes us more visible. We just want to tell you that to be upfront and honest. It just helps the growth of the podcast. It's not vanity at all. There's a slight self-esteem boost as well, though. Yeah, a little bit, right? <laughs> okay, so that being said, we do are asking our podcast listeners, go to iTunes or go on Apple Podcasts, write us a five-star review and leave a five-star rating. Over the course of this week, we're going to pick out one apiece, our favorite one, and we're going to read it on the podcast next week. And when we do that, uh, go ahead and hit us, hit us up via email because we're going to send you a prize and saying thank you. A pretty cool prize. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to give this away and uh, read out a couple winners next week. And this is international. If you live in Siberia or Antarctica or wherever, like, go ahead and do it. Write us a review on iTunes and we will love you forever. And also, thank you and you could win. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, Antarctica might be a little difficult, but Siberia, absolutely. Cool. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break and come back and jump into the podcast. Jeremy, the chapter we're in today is chapter 28. It's called The Storm Sons. We were in chapter 29 with the Tactus episode, but we have to go back to Lorne and Darrow talking in that field on Europa because this story that Lorne is about to tell Darrow shapes so much of what Golden Sun is, but furthermore, shapes a whole lot of what the Red Rising world is. And it's all centered around Nero. If you want to go read the whole thing, it's kind of long. It's inside chapter 28. You can pause the podcast and come back. We're going to go ahead and have a portion of it read right now. House Augustus was always strong. They became, along with several other families, including the Bologna and my own, the Lords of Mars. There was one family of greater power, however, named Silas. They controlled the arch-governorship and were favored by the Senate and the sitting sovereign. When your master, then simply called Nero, was seven, his father found himself in a dispute with Julius Aubelona, Cassius's grandfather. Nero's father summoned his bannermen and led them against the Bologna and the arch-governor Silas who had declared his forces for Julius Salvalone. Eventually, Nero's father found himself besieged in Aegea when his fleet was destroyed and captured around Phobos. Silas put House Augustus to death, sparing only young Nero from punishment. It is said that Arch-Governor Silas even gave young Nero grapes to quench his thirst because there was no water as the city burned around them. After that, he raised him in his own court. Twenty years later, Nero, who had always been considered an honorable and honest man, much unlike his wicked father, asked for Iona Albolona's hand in marriage. She was the youngest and favorite daughter of old Julius. It was a beautiful wedding, but that night, when the Bologna family returned to their estate with the rest of their family, a package arrived. Inside, old Julius found his daughter's head, grapes stuffed in Iona's mouth along with two wedding rings. Julius summoned his daughters and sons, including Cassius's father, and flew to the citadel to ask for justice. But instead of his old friend, he found young Nero on the arch-governor's throne, backed by Praetorians and two Olympic knights. I found out later, Nero contrived an agreement with the daughter of the sitting sovereign. You know her as Octavia Aulu. Younger then, she convinced her father to give Nero the throne of Mars and his revenge. In return, she 
She earned Nero's support when she led the faction that overthrew and killed her father five years later. That is the man you started a war for. Jeremy, I know that you and I have read this story multiple times this week, and we have thoughts and feelings on it, obviously. I want to kick it to you first. Go ahead and tell me your first big thought from this story. What this story did for me was change my vantage point on Nero. I think before, I largely saw him as this facade or, or backdrop to the story that just represented that gold machine, that that large, all-encompassing evil that just hung over the story. Yeah, okay. yeah, Very much like Octavia does for me. And Nero was very much a part of that same web with Octavia. But as soon as I got this story, it grounded this bit of humanity into Nero. And I don't want to say I came around on him and I liked him because that's not true. <laughs> I, I, I still find him to be a vile character yes. and quite detestable. But it made me have to think about it. It made me have to kind of double take uh, how pure evil he really is because I don't think he is. And and so it just made me struggle a little bit like that. For sure. There's like a level of humanity. When you find out more about someone, it just creates just more for you to wrestle with and more to deal with. And I think that Pierce Brown does this with Nero very intentionally where he doesn't do that with other antagonists such as the Grimace family or Octavia. So it's really interesting that you said like humanity because it's not the good kind of humanity, but it is still something because <laughs> you have to kind of go, wow, like this is a person now, not just a representation of the gold machine, which I always felt he was. But when you really start digging in on this character, you see how complex he actually really is and how you have to struggle with that. And you have to grapple with the idea of this same person that killed his wife on their wedding night, which is insane. But it's also the same person that would take his daughter out and ride horses and lay in fields of flowers. That is just like <laughs> next level Pierce Brown messing with your head. You're not knowing what to do with the character of like who Nero is. It makes me think back on classic horror films. Halloween comes to mind because what they did in, in the kind of this granddaddy of all horror films is that they grounded Michael Myers a little too much. They gave him too much backstory. They showed him in his youth. And then they had him driving around in a station wagon around town. And I think filmmakers quickly learn from that because subsequently you see Jason, you see Freddy Krueger and, and kind of all the other big kind of evil horror flick guys. Freddy Krueger was so scary when I was a kid. <laughs> so scary. <laughs> but they don't drive station wagons. Mm -hmm. In fact, they don't run after the victims, right? Everything that kind of is human about some of these characters is, is completely taken out, out of the equation for them. Because if they have anything, like you said, if you have a father-daughter relationship, suddenly you can't see them as pure evil. And I think Pierce has this tendency to do this with a lot of his characters. Outside of, like you were saying, Octavia, the Grimace family, a couple of these people who I think the intention is to view them in that way. Pierce actually adds a lot of context and a lot of backstory to his quote-unquote villains. And I think he wants the reader to struggle and to really have kind of mixed emotions because he writes a lot of shades of gray in his, in his writing. For sure. I totally agree with that. I, I do like the Freddy Krueger call out, as scary as it is to mention his name. 
I want to, the one big takeaway for me in this story when I've gone through it this week many times was just how small Daryl feels in this world. He, he's coming into this greater house war that's been going on for decades at this point, started by Nero's father and kind of involved House Silas, which has now been wiped from the record and the Bologna. And it's just all coming to a head. And Daryl is that kind of exclamation point on the end of the sentence. But it's weird to feel like the character of Darrow is small because he's the primary, obviously the only way we're viewing this story to this point. And he even admits later and after Lauren tells him this, this uh, kind of narrative, he's like, I didn't even know any of this. You kind of feel the weight of that sentence. You feel like, would he have done all this for Nero? Even if it's within good intentions, it doesn't matter his intentions. Would he have done this if he fully understood who Nero was or who he is rather? That's a big rabbit hole we could go down for a long time, but it's pretty crazy. It's a pretty daunting question to ask yourself, like, would I do this for this person, this man? And Darrow, again, he just feels like he is a very tiny piece of this greater Red Rising world. But I love that. I love that this just little five-minute story can unravel a whole new window, whole new prism in which Pierce Brown can now create stories and create new storylines. And I wish I had that book. I wish I had a, a, you know, that old, the book of old where we're having the Bologna Augustus Silas War. I, I would read that in a second. Absolutely. I think, I think we'd all read it. And, and you're right. It, you know, Pierce does this thing in his writing. I mean, when we first jump into the first book, you have this very mind-centric uh, story. I, and I, I absolutely thought this was going to be like this pure Martian story that was very centered around Lycos itself. As you continue through the story, suddenly it's it's the surface of Mars, and then it's a couple other planets, and, and fi- you soon find yourself in the midst of this entire solar system, and Pierce just continues to grow into this epic space opera. Mm-hmm. You get not only this amazing world building on that side, but also the, this scale of house warfare that's comparable to Dune and loved for a lot of the same reasons. It continues to just grow and grow with every new stroke that Pierce takes with his pen. And I, you're absolutely right. I mean, this this kind of makes Darrow so small a character mm. in the grand scheme of things. And I think one of the most interesting aspects about that is how powerful he is in all of this. If you think about it in the gold machine, this thing is such a house of cards for it to be capable of being knocked over by a small little red out of Lycos. That's just crazy to me. Yeah, so basically, I mean, we all know this scene. This scene's like, we've kind of, we haven't really talked about it a whole lot. We're not gonna talk about it right now necessarily, but it's through that scene that kind of unlocks this whole story of Golden Sun. It's the one where he jumps up on a table, says, my honor has been pissed on, stomps on some peas, kicks someone into Cassie's lap and they duel. And that just throws everything into chaos because like you said, this is a total house of cards, but it's so crazy that this one character could unlock everything because there's been so much set in front of him or behind him rather with all these families, all this strife and and house warfare. And he comes into it and just does this one simple action and it just throws everything into a loop. Yeah, it really does show just how frail the gold machine in society really is. Uh, Octavia builds this, I mean, and presumably this was what it was before she even had the throne. I think the story that Lauren says actually displays that as well. Absolutely, yeah. I think her father was much in the same vein as she is. Mm -hmm. But you have these 
alliances just as long as they serve your purpose of gaining or maintaining power. We looked at Tactus in another episode. Just look at how his family responded to his willingness to be subservient to Darrow. I mean, they were absolutely appalled by the fact that he would subjugate himself to any other person. You kind of combine that with Nero and how quickly he just kind of jumped away from being pro-Octavia and pro-society and willing to usurp the throne at just the slight mention of power. I mean, this whole society is just disgustingly built on this weird idea of power and gaining it at all costs. Yeah, Nero, I want to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, going back to the Gala scene as well. So you have this moment where Darrow just baits Nero completely into this his whole plan of like, you know, you should be king of Mars and just his eyes flash. And then he's, they give that little, like, you know, the blood cut under the eye and he wipes it, which is awesome. I love the lore of that right before the Gala scene. And then it's the quote from our intro, like rise man of Mars and take with you my wrath. Like he's like giving his blessing to go for it, go kill my enemy. But only because the only reason he's doing this is because he has something to gain from it. Nero has something to gain. It's not because he wants to see, he does want to see Cassius die, but mostly he wouldn't have done that unless he could have been, uh, you know, had something to gain from it truly. And I think it's just, you're right. It's crazy how Nero, Octavia, there's a lot of parallels to them. They, they share a lot of commonality, but the one thing that kind of going back and forth with this is that Nero is very humanized, whereas Octavia, even in the third book, isn't really fully realized or humanized quite the way that Nero is. Which leads me to the last thing I want to talk about with Nero before we go to our break. I know we've kind of talked about it, but I want to ask you just kind of, what are your personal feelings about Nero Augustus? Yeah, Nero is a very difficult character. <laughs> I, I have a hard time because of exactly what we have talked about, right? I mean, you have that father-daughter story. You have kind of this contextualization of his life and what he's been through. And he's, he's had trauma. I mean, that's the thing you have to realize is he's had personal trauma. His whole family was killed. His entire family was killed when he was seven. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy, but the premeditation of his actions is just next level yeah, evil. Gross. It, to wait 20 years to behead somebody in order to get back at a rival family. I, that's just, I, I can't forgive that. <laughs> I can't come around on that one. And, and ultimately, I dislike him. But, but it's not like I write him off as this horrible, pure evil character either. So I think it just leaves me with a lot of tension uh, in my thoughts. For me, I, I would agree. Tension's a great word for that. Man, I think I'm with you for the most part. But I want to say something that, about him that, about Nero rather, that I really enjoy. Purely from a literary standpoint, I guess, I don't know how I feel about him personally, honestly. I, I, I kind of want to appreciate him for like kind of what a badass he is. But I also want to despise him for being so gross and so evil. But I don't know him personally, so <laughs> and I never will. <laughs> but at the same time, what I take away from Nero in the story and when I read Golden Sun, which is my favorite of the Red Rising series, is that I appreciate what a tangential character he is. He's connected to everybody. You can go back to one the first big moment, Red Rising, and he's there. You can go to the end of the first book in Red Rising and that steel is power and money is power, but more than all the things in all the world's words are power. That line sticks with me like, like in a personal way. And that's a Nero quote. 
and like how powerful words really are and how interesting that was because he was the one that said that to Eo's husband, that words are so powerful. And he believes it, like he believes it to his core. And I think the, the character has a lot to offer in that way. But also, again, let me go back to my tangential point is that he's connected to Mustang, connected to Adrius, connected to Victra, connected to Severo, uh, to connected to Fitchner. He's just, he's kind of just like, you used the word web earlier. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that, like that vibe where he is kind of the center of one side of the story in this web and he just is connected to everybody. And that to me is really interesting and makes me appreciate him. I say that really hesitantly because I know a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? Like this guy is an evil monster, which you're right. I think we feel this way about a lot of Pierce's characters that are the antagonists is that just because we don't like them, we can still appreciate how they're written. And also, I think that's a really great call out, actually. You think of some of these houses, and they're great houses. And even the Telemannises, who we have a lot of affinity for, they're bannermen for the Augustuses. Mm -hmm. So you really have these kind of couple central families. And I'm sure there's more in, in society that are not mentioned because this still is a very Martian-focused uh, story. However, at the same time, you're right. Like, Nero is right there with Octavia somehow at the center of all controversy, at the middle of the wagon wheel or the web or, or yeah. however you wish to describe that. I don't think the Bolognas, I don't think the Arcoses, I don't think that a lot of these other major, major families are as influential as, and important as Nero actually is in society as a whole. Totally agree. Yeah, this week, I know you and I can jam on this character for a long time, but before we get all the way down a rabbit hole, let's go ahead and take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk more about Nero. And we'll talk about the lineage of the story and its impact. Oh, let's see. Uh, I suppose I could stay in the core. Mars is lovely this time of year, but I've seen it before. Mercury is... Just a bit too bougie for my taste, and there's far too many people on Luna. I don't know, maybe the rim? EO seems kind of quaint. I think I'd get bored. I don't know. I guess that leaves the far ink. It would take me a while to get there, but at this point I think a long break is exactly what I'm going to need after all this is done. So, yeah, why not? I'm just going to go ahead and book it. It's done. I'm going to be visiting Pluto. Really? Pluto? Am I sure about this? wonder what their refund policy is. Oh, broadcast here. Sorry, I was planning a break. I, I just feel like I've been working non-stop. Been on the comms night and day, and as soon as they give the word, I'm going to shut things down and uh, head on a transport to uh, the furthest planet in the system, just to get a bit of peace and quiet. So, let's see. What are you guys in the mood for? Let me just look through my collection here, and this one will do. Now, I will put a link to this track in the show notes, in case you want to find it for yourself. And maybe when this is all said and done, I can put together a mixtape. Would you all listen to a mixtape if I made one? Ah, that's a gory good idea. Okay, well... <clears throat> Hailed Reaper is brought to you this week by Terigian Law. If you're seeking legal counsel or you're in a situation that you're not sure how to handle, Terigian Law might just be the answer. They offer a free consultation to assess your situation because not every attorney is the right professional for the job. 
The great thing about Turrigian Law is that there's no doublespeak, no confusing language, no upfront commitment. It's just a conversation with someone who wants to understand what you're going through to help you get to the next step. Getting started is easy. Just call 559-627-5399. Maybe I should go to Earth. Now, 559-627-5399 or visit turrigianlaw.com. That's T-O-R-I-G-I-A-N-L-A-W.com. No matter the circumstance, we all deserve peace of mind. So stop sitting with the uncertainty and get the advice you need today. Once again, that's T-O-R-I-G-I-A-N-L-A-W.com. Or call 559-627-5399. Tarigian Law. The advice you need, minus the BS. Jeremy, each episode of season two, we've been tapping into different themes of Golden Sun, and this one being the lineage and the bloodline. And this is actually something that you thought of. So I want to give you an opportunity to speak to it and how it relates to Nero and also how it relates to the greater story in Red Rising. Obviously, within this story, you get this sense that family and bloodlines are ultimately incredibly important. And and you see this in obvious ways, like the battles between houses and, and all kinds of things. But I think Pierce really uses these themes in a much deeper way. I think society as a whole puts a ton of value on offspring that really directly mirror that parent or, or parents in some situation. And I think there's a lot of different examples that we can use for this. But the reason I bring it up here is because it's a Nero episode. And I think Nero actually best exemplifies this point, uh, especially through the lens of the story that we just got from Lorne. You go back and you have this kind of adopted Bologna family, and he just becomes a traitor. You know, he sells him out. He starts murdering people within his own, I'm going to call it family. And it's really to gain power. I mean, and again, you see Adrius do the exact same thing. You know, he starts taking lives. He starts wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. So you even go to the point of the garden party where these grapes show up again. Yeah. <laughs> They're once again stuffed into a decapitated head. And I think that's just crazy how close Pierce draws these parallels. I like when authors really close gaps down on that. And they can kind of, you didn't even know it was a gap, but then when the author puts it together, you're like, holy crap. You do see that echoing of Nero to Adrius. And you also see it with Octavia to Lysander. And she's kind of trying to make him that carbon copy of herself and then eventually give him the opportunity to rule. But she's doing it in this way that's like crazy micromanaging. You know, you see that in Golden Sun where she's just Mm -hmm. trying to make him a little mini me. Another thing that I I kind of see this come up in, and I know we've already touched on this a little bit, so I'll just make a a quick mention Mm -hmm. is, is Tactus. We talked about the subservience, and, and I think it goes beyond that prior mention and speaks again to this, where they really were trying to get him into line with how the Valley Iraths act. It's not just one thing to try to gain power, but you have to gain it through the Valley Irath way. You have to gain it through the Bologna way or the Augustus way. There's certain family traditions that are integral to how you act in society, and they really try to just mash people into the mold and make them exactly what their predecessors were. That's why I like Golden Sun so much as a book compared to Red Rising. I mean, Red Rising is an awesome book, A+. But there's an A++ for me with Golden Sun because of this unfurling of a map. Like, the Lauren story is just highlighting 
how like, it's like almost like in Red Rising, Pierce Brown is like shining a flashlight on a piece of a map. And then all of a sudden someone comes into the room and turns the lights on. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, that maps the entire wall. It's not just this little flashlight bulb here. Yeah, I find it interesting that you can actually zoom out a bit and view this in a greater context where you absolutely have the family leaders, the Neros passing along lineage and, and bloodline tendencies and things like that for their family. But even outside of, of the golds, even within other colors, I mean, you have to understand that the gold machine is not just held up by the golds. Mm. You even see this with characters like Mickey and within the Red Society and the willingness to just go along with things. And that's passed down through generations to be subservient, you know? Mm. Look at the religious tendencies of the obsidians that they pass on generation to generation to view the gold as gods. I mean, this idea of lineage and bloodline certainly extends way beyond just the central figure of Nero. Nero is just a piece of this greater story like we've talked about today. And it's weird because you would think of him as the center of it all. And in some ways he is, he is the center of it all. Like I said, he's a very, he, he is just a walking tangent of a character that connects to all these other things and all these other people and places and time and history of the Red Rising world. Yet it's so much bigger than who he is. And in a way, I guess the last thing I wanna say before we close the podcast, it actually makes me feel small as a reader. I know I said it makes Darrow feel small at the top, but it makes me feel like I, even though I've read these books time and time again, I still don't have a good understanding or a good hold on them in a way because this universe that Pierce has created is so much bigger than let's say the universe of maybe Middle Earth or the or the one in Game of Thrones, the Westeros. Like they just, they feel like you could be there. And I think a lot of that has to do with the the place that it's at as far as 700, 800 years in the future. But it also just feels like it's just so much more global and so much bigger than I can even imagine. I don't know how you feel about that. Do you ever feel kind of lost in the world of Red Rising due to that? Yeah, I'd say that I do. I think in two different ways. And I'm not sure which one you're kind of leading toward uh, explaining. Yeah. But you you both see it like in the, in the grand scheme of things. And it's much like when you look at those pictures of different galaxies and stuff and you just realize how small you really are and how... Yeah, you're a big nothingness in the grand scheme of life. <laughs> That's depressing. But anyway, <laughs> um, but I think the other way it has a tendency to make you feel small is is again in this unfurling of the greater story and the ever expansive nature of this series. I mean, the list of characters just continues to grow and f- for that, like, and I think that may actually parallel Game of Thrones in a little, in a way. But yeah, I, I kind of get lost in in the sense of it's hard to track and keep with everybody as well. Can I say something about Red Rising in a boastful way, though? I think that there is a big cast of characters like Game of Thrones, but I feel like I know everyone in Red Rising. I don't feel like I know everyone. I've read Game of Thrones, the at least the five books that are available because... George R. R. Martin won't get off his butt and write those uh, the sixth and seventh book. <laughs> but then we we did complete the show or complete it through a show medium. But I didn't feel like I knew everybody. I, I didn't feel like they were, even in those old books, like the ones like, you know, one through five, Pierce Brown chooses to humanize Nero and make sure he plugs in just even a, a few sentences to get you an idea and understanding of, of who this person is and why. And he chooses also in the same way to maybe alienate other characters like Octavia, like where you don't really get to know her intentionally because if you did get to know her, you might wrestle with the same feelings you have for Nero 
And that's not her role. That's not her character. Her character is a one of ire and one of hate. And, and, you, and she's supposed to represent something to fall. Whereas Nero isn't necessarily supposed to be that. He's supposed to be something that you have to kind of, I mean, the way he leaves Golden Sun, how do you read that and just go, yep, that guy had that coming. I mean, part of me thinks that too, but his own son, his second son, organized and orchestrated the death of his first and favorite son in a such a ridiculously evil way. And I, I, I wrestle with that for Nero. I wrestle with that and, and just like, there's so much humanity there that you don't get with Octavia or some of these other like Aja's or the Ash Lord. Like they're just really evil, but that's so intentional by Pierce Brown. I know we're kind of just giving a round of applause for Pierce Brown for how he writes these books, <laughs> but I think it's worth also exploring at the same time. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, but to some extent, I mean, we're all here because that round of applause is deserved. I mean, Pierce has mad skill and he's given us a world we love and want to dig deeper into every day. 100%, man. With that being said, let's wrap up the podcast there. Until next week, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper is a production of Catacomb Body. Thanks to Pierce Brown for creating this universe. And thanks to all the contributors who make this show possible. We were engineered by Joshua Ramsey, with editing and sound design by Math Ardelion. The bit of music you're hearing right now was written and produced by Sahab. If you enjoy what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. And follow at Hail Reaper Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for updates, giveaways, and more. You can support the show directly by joining our Patreon community, where we issue monthly bonus content, exclusive artwork, and hang about with all the howlers of the Discord. Visit patreon.com slash hellreaper to learn more. This is Broadcast signing off. Until next time, hail the gory damn reaper. Oh,